Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. Here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the president of Figure Eight Thinking and author of The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation and Intuition at Work. Please welcome Miss Nellie Nixon. Nellie, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. And uh, for folks listening out there, we had Nellie on as a part of our top 50 keynote speakers of 2022. So she's been very grateful to come on to this podcast, share some of her knowledge about curiosity and how to unlock that in the workforce. So let's start with that, Nellie. What does that look like exactly? I mean, you know, for business owners, leaders, as we grow a little bit older, we kind of lose a little bit of that creativity. How can creativity and innovation, I guess, unlock innovation in the workplace? Well, first, I think it's important to understand what creativity actually is. And in my work advising leaders at companies on transformation, I often find that in the pursuit of innovation, we're not pausing and taking a step back and starting with creativity because we're not understanding what creativity actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to silo creativity in the arts. And I hear all the time, you you have probably heard statements like this. Um, I'm not creative because I can't fill in the blank, sing, paint, draw, dance, act, etc." Or we even have in our organizations, phrases like the creatives, We'll take care of it and we're t- we tend to be referring people in design or maybe some of the the marketing functions but if we realize that creativity is actually our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and produce novel value that value could be financial value social value cultural value then you realize that to be the best engineer accountant lawyer teacher physician you are super creative when you're doing this toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So one of the the first mishaps I see in organizations is that we are not designing the space or the time for the wonder or the rigor. And by the way, let me just unpack what each of those dimensions are. Wonder is about curiosity, awe, audacity. Um, it's about pausing because you can't wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour (laughs) and rigor is about discipline and focus and mastery of skill and time on task creativity requires both of these and sometimes we think of creativity as being some kind of woo woo addendum to the important stuff and we only think about the wonder dimension of, of creativity but creativity requires quite amount of rigor by the way uh sometimes i'm also finding in companies that we're conflating rigor with rigidity and rigidity is very different than rigor i'd like to compare it to uh i'm i live in philadelphia i'm from philly and the commonwealth of pennsylvania we have the groundhog who peeps up its head 
around February, March to tell us how many more weeks of winter we have. So rigor is like the groundhog where you are very aware of the landscape of context and you adapt accordingly. Rigidity is we said we were going to go in this direction. We're going to plow ahead, even though alarms are sounding and all the flags are going up. So first we need to understand what creativity actually is. Uh, this talk between wonder and rigor to solve problems. We have to, we have to hire for creativity. Uh, we have to realize then that that helps us to really um, design ways of working so that we will truly innovate because creativity is the engine for innovation. Um, so that's the biggest, that's the, that, that's, that's the first place to start. And it's actually a big place to start because it's really changing our mental model and our understanding of what creativity is and who we need to have around us on our teams. And what is the feedback you get from a lot of the business owners or managers uh, that you work with? You know, creativity and something that, you know, I, I, you know, I hate to say how many people can actually implement something that you can full on, like your whole culture is going to adopt where it's, is it practice? Is it repetitive? How do you increase a embraceive culture of creativity? That's a great question. And implicit in your question is this appreciation that culture change takes time. Yeah. Culture change does not happen overnight. And the way, first of all, the way I think about culture is culture is what people say to you, say about you when you're not around, when you're not in the room, that's your culture. And culture starts with culture change starts with a change in mindset, which leads to changes in behaviors, which then leads to culture change. So we have to first start with the way we even think about our business, the way we think about um, each other, how we interact with each other. One of the first places I like to start, um, when we think about culture, we think about language, artifacts, rituals. So if you think about in your company, what is language slash jargon that we just take for granted? What are some of the rituals that we just have embedded in the way that we do work? What are the artifacts that, artifacts that we hold um, sacred that we don't dare touch, but maybe we need to re-examine them? And so, for example, um, a ritual slash artifact that's a great place to start is, is thinking about how we might redesign the way we meet, redesigning meetings. And we certainly have had a lot of opportunity to redesign meetings during the time of the pandemic because we haven't been able to meet in person. We're meeting through these virtual environments. And there's opportunities to rethink who leads the meeting. Um, how do we frame the agenda? Um, how long should the meetings last? Um, do they have to be done in the same sorts of environments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but culture change, I always believe in first, we have to identify leaders throughout the organization. So it, it can't just be led in a top down approach but also identifying emergent leaders, leaders who might be newer to the organization, younger folks, people on the margins. We, we then need to prototype new ways of working. Culture change is not going, especially culture change that begins to integrate creativity into the, into the way we work, it's not going to happen overnight. And so if we prototype new ways of working, we actually begin to figure out what sticks what makes sense to us as an organization in terms of our cadence, what our clients need from us, what they expect from us, what's palatable that we can start to take on and begin to change bit by bit. And in that way, we begin, even by 
incorporating prototyping to the way we are working, that right there is a way to integrate experimental ways of working. Creativity loves the ability to dive into an experimental mindset instead of saying, this is the way, this is the answer, this is the only uh, sort of approach we should be thinking about. It's really interesting and very helpful, you know, for a lot of people listening to this. Sometimes it's just one thing that makes all the difference. One little idea, one little book, you know, that, that can change your perspective on something and have that manifest throughout the organization. Were you, Natalie, in an organization that lacked creativity? Were you someone who said, you know what, this isn't being done right? How, how did this idea start? Well, I, I don't like to say that organizations lack creativity. I'd like to, I'd like to reframe that and say that it's just a bit um, nascent. It's a bit dormant, but it, it absolutely is there because creativity is embedded in the people um, who show up every day to produce the work, the ideas, the experiences, the services. And sometimes those people are the front line folks. So if you think of a fast food restaurant or any kind of retail environment, right now a lot of it is e-commerce, but it's the people who are at the call centers, the people who are at the register who get the immediate feedback from our customers about what is working, what isn't working. And if, the, and if we uh, just started to employ one of what I call the three eyes, curiosity, and started asking folks maybe a little further along on the food chain, their ideas, their suggestions, that would go a long way. And I love that you pointed out that it's often the small adjustments and tweaks in the dial. You know, change in nature, change throughout history, it's often this small fissure. It's a small little crack in the system that begins to have a cascading effect throughout the larger system. So yes, it doesn't take huge, momentous, radical investments of money necessarily, uh, huge investments in um, you know, firing everybody and getting fresh people in. No, that's not what it takes. It takes showing up differently, listening differently, um, if we take the curiosity piece, um, one of the things I talk a lot about is leading with inquiry, leading with questions. And leading with questions does not look like, okay, everybody, give me your best questions. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Because you'll probably be greeted with a lot of blank stares. Because so many of us have been question shamed in our educational uh, histories and our, in our, our careers. And we're a little reticent to be the first ones to raise our hand. So what leading with questions and inquiry does look like is first kind of understanding all the variations of types of questions that there are. You know, I'm a big fan of the work of Warren Berger, who wrote a more beautiful question, and he calls himself a questionologist. And he talks, he's, he's convinced, and I agree with him, that we actually should be teaching how to ask questions in school. If you think about it, we assume we know how to ask questions and we know the best way to ask questions, but there's actually kind of a taxonomy of questions. There's very divergent questions. They get you to uh, big blue sky thinking like, what if, I wonder. Um, and then there's convergent sorts of questions that help you to begin to distill and get tactical, like what and how and when. And so first it's just becoming really familiar with questions themselves. Then, it, then secondly, it's really engaging in self-inquiry as a leader. Now, the other thing that I love that Warren Berger said on a podcast experiment that I led called the Wonder Rigor Lab, he acknowledged 
that when you lead with questions, you're fundamentally ceding control, which is terrifying. Because what's the model of leadership most of us have been taught? It's certainty. It's, you know, being able to, to you know, push forward uh, and, and, and with, with no doubts and, you know, people, you know, your followers just, you know, following along. Um, and this feels very, might feel very counterintuitive, but actually when we reveal, when we're more transparent about the sorts of questions we as leaders have started to have about a process, about this new marketing strategy, about this financial model we've been working on, about this former competitor who now, what if we, what if we approach them in a partnership? That level of transparency and vulnerability goes miles and what it models for the people you're trying to bring along. So if you as a leader begin to reveal and are a lot more transparent about the questions you yourself have, when you begin to invite questions and really engage people and ask people to share their own questions, they will be a lot less reticent to do that. I totally agree with you. And, and that's one of the things I personally need to work on as well. It's like, you know, these past couple of months, I've just like, I pray for openness. You know, I pray for just, that one moment where I'm just like, gosh, please, please be open and considerate of what is going on in these conversations. I, I agree. People who include myself sometimes, you know, that talk too much during meetings are you're trying to like almost prove like how smart you are. It's, it's, it's not the way to go. And the leaders that are the best leaders that I know, and, and maybe you agree are the ones that say less and ask more questions. Uh, yes. I, I guess I just found that. Yes, I, you know, uh, I've shared with you that I'm a lifelong dancer and right now um, my go to techniques that I've been I've been studying and you'll laugh at this, Kevin, because I've already shared the, the breadth of my music interest, but the, the techniques that I've, I've been studying of late are hip hop and ballroom. And one of the things that ballroom dance has taught me so much is how to follow. And actually, one of the, the reasons why I decided to learn ballroom, number one, I love to dance. And ballroom is a wonderful way for, for a person who loves to dance to continue dancing as, as one ages. But I also knew, I thought, I'm a decent leader, but I don't think I'm a very good follower. And this was actually during the days when I was still single. I wasn't married yet. And I thought, one day I want to be married. And I think probably in a marriage, I can't always, we're going to have to take turns in leading and following. Um, so how could I get better at following? And I probably noodled on this question to myself for about three months. And then it occurred to me, I was like, what if I studied tango? Because in the tango, the woman's role, you must intuitively follow. And then that led me to, now I, I cross train in ballroom and I learn all different techniques from smooth rhythm, rhythm and Latin. Um, and what I love is the, are the life lessons that I transfer from the barroom dance floor to my work. Mm. Because, and again, this is going to be another counterintuitive statement, but I really believe if you want to become a better follower, sorry, a better leader, you need to learn to follow. And that following um, comes in the form of being more observant. It comes in the form, as you said, um, not talking as much and listening more. It comes in the form of asking new and different questions. So the ability to follow is, in my view, one of the greatest hallmarks of a really successful leader. I think a good follower, too, to go on that, that riff and 
is someone who has a really good intuition, like you say in this book, someone that can really understand and, and sense the emotion, read the room fairly well. How does a leader follow a good tempo and, and continue to be synchronized with the ones who are in the room? Well, it's, it's this, this verb toggle comes back to me. It's being um, sensitive to, emotionally intelligent to the nuances, reading the room, um, and listening to one's intuition. For the, the book, The Creativity Leap, I interviewed over 50 people who come from a range of sectors. I interviewed people at NASA. I interviewed a perfume nose at the International Flavors and Fragrances Organization. I interviewed farmers. I interviewed engineers. And um, to a successful leader, when I started asking them to share their own stories about intuition in their life and in their work, what their thoughts were about intuition, they all acknowledged the role of integrating intuition in strategic decision making. And intuition, the way I define it, is that it's pattern recognition. Um, I've seen this before. It's sense making. It's not necessarily rationally definable. Sometimes I call intuition brain feelings. And it turns out that in our bodies, we are actually physiologically designed to really be using our intuition because we have in our bodies, the second lo longest nerve is the vagus nerve. Uh, the first longest nerve is our spinal cord. And the second one is the vagus nerve. And it extends from our, our cranium, our brain, down through our heart, into our gut. And so when we say things like, my gut is telling me, it literally is, <laughs> right? We are, we are hardwired to connect those, those domains. And so um, reading the room, um, toggling between um, you know, an initiative and then pausing, another one of those elements of wonder and being able to adapt, um, our intuition really can help us with that. What is the science behind that, Natalie? Uh, like, you know, I was really interested, I actually saw this report just to go on this, I think you'd, you'd enjoy this as well. They, they took sweat from like a skydiver and then someone who I think was swimming. Afterward, they drenched the sweat, they put it, they had it in these two dishes. And then afterward, they put some brain maps on somebody. And when they had them smell the sweat from the skydiver and the smell from the pool, the brain waves were different. The sweat from the skydiver provoked a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And then the one from the, so all this is to say, senses, smelling fear is an actual thing. You can actually do that. What is the science behind intuition and recognizing um, emotions from others? Well, I'm admittedly a student of the science or the neuroscience of creativity. Um, I actually have mm. um, a colleague, uh, acquaintance, Balder Onerheim. He's Norwegian based in Denmark, and he really is an expert in the neuroscience of creativity. Um, but we can train, what we do know about the brain is that a lot of the work that we emphasize and that, re that we reward really takes place in the frontal neocortex of the brain. There's so many other regions and recesses of the brain, and I believe it's called the salient network. There's, a set, there's something called the salient network in our brains, which is really the, the network of neurons in our brains that does the synthesis work. So 
you know, those fresh in the morning when you're starting to emerge from a deep sleep and all of a sudden you have those aha moments or when you're super relaxed in a shower. Um, that's when you're actually, or as I like to uh, advise people take daydream breaks and you come back from a daydream um, and all of a sudden the, the new idea emerges. It's because you, you have activated the neuro, neural activity in the brain in different recesses and regions of the brain away from the frontal neocortex that are allowing that synthesis that happens in the salient network to really um, be triggered. Um, but I, like I said, I'm a student of the neuroscience of creativity. I'm still learning a ton. Um, but what I find fascinating is that the more that I read about it, the more I'm convinced that we need to pause and, and not only show up to work from um, the chin up, but we need to show up to work from the heart up and from the gut up, especially right now in this fourth industrial revolution where tech is ubiquitous, uh, the train has left the station. So AI, AR, VR, uh, um, uh, robotics, automation of all sorts means that there are gonna be casualties in our work environments. If anything that's task related will be taken over by computers. But the, the upside of that is that it actually allows for more room and opportunity for the human to show up. And one of the biggest ways that the human shows up is through our creativity. It's through our imagination. It's through the ways that we can intuit. It's through the ways that we can dream up new and different questions. It's through the ways that we can improvise and experiment. Um, I actually have just gone through uh, what I call the three eyes, which is the way that we operationalize toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. The three eyes are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. And so in the midst of all of being surrounded by all this technology, we really need to lean into the human. How do I practice improvisation on a daily basis? Well, I observe, and I myself sometimes lapse into this, but a lot of us are intimidated by improvisation. Um, and rightly so, because you think of amazing improvisers, you think of like incredible jazz musicians or, or like, astounding rap artists or you think of the incredible comedic improv artists on a Saturday Night Live and you're like oh my god I can't do that and I beg to differ we actually um probably between the time we woke up this morning to lunchtime had to hack our way through supporting a spouse a child a client a colleague um we improvised and we certainly were amazing improvisers as children. But improvisation, the definition that I like to share about improvisation is that improvisation is about adaptive, self-organizing, emergent systems. So anytime that we allow ourselves to adapt and not be rigidly rooted to one way of doing things, anytime we allow ourselves, or they allow the answers to emerge, uh, anytime that we are self-organizing, this, this is all improvisation. And, and improvisation is a complex system. It's a chaotic system. Creativity is a chaotic system that consists of both chaos and order. And chaos is not anarchy. Chaos is randomness. And order isn't control. Order is boundaries. Improvisation is not doing whatever you feel like. Improv has rules. 
And you actually need to know the rules so that you can break them, so that you can stretch them, so that you can rebound against them. So all, let's take jazz musicians as an example. All great jazz musicians know music theory. They practice incessantly. A jazz composition has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's structure and order. The magic is the randomness and the stretching and the extension of those rules that they do within that order. I love the concept of order and chaos. You know, it's one that takes that to the beginning of time and the yin and the yang. How do you find the balance when your life is in chaos? And uh, that's order. And when your life's too much in order, that's sometimes not so good. Sometimes you need to, to uh, find that, that middle ground, that in between. Um, my question is, when people, it seems like, are going a million miles a minute, from a leader of an organization going a million miles in a minute, improvising, improvising, improvising. Do you have any thoughts on how to slow down, uh, to articulate to people who are maybe not at that speed, not at that frequency? So first I do wanna give credit to the, the progenitor of the term chaotic, it's D Hawk who was the first president of Visa, the credit card company. And when he was tasked with the job of leading one of the world's first uh, companies based on the global companies based on the ex virtual exchange of currency, he thought, how can I design this company in a way that um, didn't look like a typical org chart? And he was a big naturalist and he observed in nature that there's both chaos and order and he did a mashup of those two words and he made up the word chaos. So all credit to D Hawk for that word. And now there's a whole group of scholarship and academics who, who study chaotic systems thinking and, and that sort of thing. But when leaders are finding themselves a, a bit out of sync with um, the rest of their teams, when they're running, as you said, a million miles a minute, that's where this self-awareness is really required of us. I often say, that leadership is inside out work. Um, wherever you go, there you are. So all the criticisms that you may have of your team, it's really a reflection of what you may have implicitly or directly been asking of them, what, you're, you, what you yourself are modeling. And so um, when I said earlier that great leaders are great followers, it's because they're also allowing themselves to pause and they design into their day, into their week, practices and habits to slow down, um, to reflect, um, to have a, a reality check. And what that could look like is everything from daydream breaks to having um, a significant person who may not work in your particular company or even sector, who can give you a fresh eyes perspective who you, with whom you can bounce ideas off of and be able to get that perspective so that you can zoom out. But that zooming out is a metaphor for what it takes to pause and then to regroup. Nellie, I know you have a history and background in anthropology. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, based on this research, where does this thinking come from? How has intuition and uh, improvisation helped our ancestors uh, throughout our development? Well, in a world where you have to literally hack your way for 
protection, warmth, clothing, shelter. Um, it's a it's a mode of survival to be able to improvise, to adapt. You know, I, I've spent some time in the Middle East and I'm very, um, I'm a big admirer of the Bedouin people, the Bedouin culture. Uh, just the fact that this is a super ancient culture where people are able to literally read what to me is a very mysterious landscape, i.e. the desert, right? They're a nomadic group um, and their ability to adapt, their ability to be super resourceful out of what seems to me as an extreme outsider, um, like a lot of scarcity. So we, when we, we have still remaining in our, in our, mm. in our world, um, um, people who are part of ancient cultures where they totally um, exhibit the ability to improvise, um, to intuit, to, you know, so often I will, I admire the way, you know, I live in the city, uh, but I live in Philadelphia where uh, we actually, I'm proud to say, have 10x the amount of green space integrated to our city as as Central Park is in, in Manhattan. And so I live across the street from a woods and I live in the city. Um, so we have raccoons and deer and fox and also, you know, the squirrels and chipmunks and all that sort of thing, the birds. But I'm so fascinated with how animals um, survive on their instinct. They don't need a rational reason to all of a sudden jet off if they hear or sense a movement. They will figure it out later, right? Mm. Because their survival depends on it. So we have remnants and examples of this through civilization and culture. And again, it, it requires this observations, observatory role of where and how in our own lives might we uh, incorporate the ability to pause more, to uh, speak less, observe more, sit with the uncertainty that often intuition is, because intuition does not always come to us like a resounding clear bell. You got to sit with that discomfort. And going back to one of the reasons why we tend to, we lay all the responsibility of creativity onto artists, is because artists are exceptional at wrestling with the ambiguity of process. They're not concerned only with what's the answer. They're totally enamored with the process. I once heard an interview with the actress, Laura Linney, who's in uh, the hit show Ozark. Um, and she talked about how in her experience as a live theater Broadway actor, she says, there's always that moment when you, everyone's in rehearsal mode, you, you've gone through the honeymoon stage of everyone being excited about the production and everyone hits a wall and you don't, and, and things aren't clicking and you have all these doubts about your ability or how you interpreted the character and, and things seem to be crumbling. And she said, you have to sit with the ambiguity of that moment. And it's mm. not easy to do, but you can only go through it. You can't, you can walk away. And sometimes that's a good thing to do, but you got to revisit it. You got to move through it. You can't skirt around it. Well, let's talk about the wall for a minute. Cause I feel like many workers experience that and even CEOs, right? And, and, you know, we had a big event about it back in December, how to inspire your employees in 2022. 88% of the people said right now they'll leave their jobs. When you get to that point, what's a way to overcome that ambiguity? 
like you were mentioning in in a creative way in a fun way well i actually i created a course called the wonder rigor lab and one of the the exercises early on in this course is something i actually tried on myself um years ago i was in a place professionally where i hit a wall i didn't know what to do but i i was i was increasingly given the inkling that i no longer wanted to do what I'd been doing for a good 15 years. And that was terrifying. I had my first world existential crisis. And so what this exercise is, I call it the loathe love audit. It's very simple. Okay. In a blank piece of paper, you draw a line down the center. And on the left-hand side, you write at the top, you write the word loathe. I mean, like despise, detest, you loathe. And on the right-hand side, you write the word love. And what Mm. I did, and a very crude way back then was I listed all the things I literally loathed about my job that I like despised. So I got that out of my system, looked at that list. I was like, oh, okay. And then I, on the right-hand side, I, I listed all things that I actually absolutely adored and loved and appreciated about my work and my job. And then what began to happen, because I had extrapolated in the midst of this uncertainty this, this, this fearful moment of, gosh, I don't think I can do this anymore. I want to do this anymore. When I extrapolated out the good, the love, that helped me to all of a sudden reframe because those adjectives, those verbs, those nouns, I started to say, huh, what if I could still do everything on the right-hand side of this page, but it's just not called X anymore, right? I, I reframe. I redefine. And all of a sudden I got re-energized and I got very excited about paying attention to those descriptors that motivated me and then began to concoct what is now my career as a creativity strategist. I love it. Now, I, for people listening to this, I got a deck of cards right here in front of me, the Wonder Rigor Discovery Deck. Now, Nally has sent me a package in the mail. How can our users get involved uh, with Wonder Rigor. Tell me about this deck and how it works. Sure. Well, lots of ways. Glad you asked. Um, the first thing they should do is big, visit the figure8thinking.com website. That's the word figure, the number eight, thinking.com. And um, I help people primarily through my global speaking and my advisory work. And I also have these other ways. So the Wonder Rigor Discovery deck that you're sharing about is a card game I actually designed before I even wrote the book, The Creativity Leap. And it's a series of question prompts where I take people through four domains of wonder and rigor. So when you open the card deck, there's an instruction booklet and there's a two by two grid because I'm a strategy nerd. So I love creating lots of two by twos. And basically what I developed were four domains or think of them as lenses or eyeglasses, four different sets pairs of eyeglasses to try on to look at a problem very differently. So the way I designed the game, but I, I hear from people all over the world that sometimes people use it just for to spark dinner conversation. I don't care. I don't care if people use it. But the initial idea was that you start by identifying a problem or a challenge or an opportunity that you've been wrestling with. And you go through a series of mindset cards, and then you go through a series of what I call catalyst cards. 
And you're really working through identifying what's the present state mode or domain in which I'm tackling this problem. And so the four domains are sometimes we can hack. Sorry, sorry, let me start the other way. Sometimes we can we can specialize our way through an opportunity problem. That's when we're using a lot of rigor. Sometimes we if I if I move toward down um, clockwise to the left and up, we hack our way, right? When we when we are not afraid afraid of letting perfection be the enemy of good. It's it, we're we're done is is better than perfect. Sometimes we are totally in the wonder mode where we're super provocative. We want to blow the roof off the mother, and we want to be incredibly audacious. And then there's other times when we spend our head in the clouds, time in the trenches, and we're ready to be inventive and have that product market fit. fit. And the point is, in my present state way of approaching this problem, which, is, which pair of glasses, which domain do I tend to go to? Is it hacking? Is it specialization? And then here's the stretch. What might, how might I approach this problem differently if I chose a different domain? So we always wanna start with the present state. We wanna know where we are currently. And let's say, I've been approaching because my my I will admit my go to way of dealing with things is the um, pro provo pro provocation where I, I live in the space of wonder. I love that. But for me, what would be more challenging is specialization. Right. So who would be new partners I might seek out to work with? What might want to start reading up on? Um, how might I want to carve out my time differently? How would I need to do much more heads down? deep study work. What, how, what now might I need to be a clumsy student of to learn something new and really get skill mastery at? And what that begins to open up are new ways of working, new partnerships, and it gives you an insight of a completely um, awesome way of thinking about that problem or challenge. You know, I wish I would have had this a couple of years ago because, you know, when, when I think about leadership and I think about the, the wonder boys and girls that are in our company, you know, what are some rigor to be applied? I mean, I think we all know someone who's incredibly talented, you know, wicked smart, has all the creativity and gifts in the world, but are they persistent? You know, are they consistent? Do they have discipline? You know, these are the things when you combine these two that really create special leaders, special people, and special organizations. Now, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? I think I would go back to something I said earlier in our conversation, Kevin, which is that a real leader isn't afraid to follow. A real leader isn't afraid to follow their intuition. They're not afraid to pause and observe more, ask, ask new and different questions, and in that way, truly follow so that they will be more aligned and in step with what the team needs and what the clients need. Fantastic. Well, now it's been a pleasure having you on this program today. Where can people find more information about your good work? Thank you for that. They can go to figure8thinking.com. They can buy a copy of the Creativity Leap. Definitely can buy um, the Wonder Rigor Discovery Deck and even sign up for the course, the Wonder Rigor Lab, and a lot more coming. So if they, if they go to figureatthinking.com and sign up for the newsletter Ever Wonder, they will be in great shape. For Nellie Nixon, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. Don't be a, or sorry, don't be afraid to be a follower. And always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Nellie. Thank you.